Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Investing with IBD podcast sponsored by Vantage Point. It's Wednesday, February 16th, 2022, and I'm Justin Nielsen, your host, and joining me, as always, is Arusha Pierce, Portfolio Manager at O'Neill Global Advisors. Welcome back, Arusha. Hey, Justin's always great to be here. And now before we get started today, I wanted to tell you about a survey that we'd love our listeners to help us out with. So we want to get better and we want to produce content that our listeners want. So if you could go to investors.com slash survey for us, uh, that would really kind of help us customize this podcast, make it something that is engaging for you. Uh, any suggestions, we just love to hear it. So again, if you could go to that investors.com slash survey, we would really appreciate it. So now, let's go ahead and introduce our special guest this week, and it is, ha I'm happy to welcome back John Kosar, Chief Market Strategist from Asbury Research. John Kosar, great to have you back on the show. It's good to be here, guys. Thank you for having me. Okay. Now, uh, on the show today, we'll talk about the current state of the markets. Uh, John is going to go over some of the levels that he's looking at, and he's going to remind us about some of the cor correction protection models that he has, his Asbury 6. And of course, later in the show, we're going to get into his SEAF model, which is really tracking the sectors and where those asset flows are going. Uh, we'll also talk a little bit about the jujitsu that's involved uh, that algos are doing and uh, with equity markets now. And so there's just really a lot to cover. So I'm looking forward to it. Um, uh, John, uh, maybe we start out. Uh, I know you follow the S&P 500 Okay, here we've got a chart of the S&P 500. It goes back about a year. And the, the interesting thing about this chart is we're trading right in the middle of a couple of really important levels. Uh, up on the bottom, let's say up on the top, let's start up top. 45.95 is the high that we made back at the beginning of February and February 2. 4601 is the 50-day moving average. A lot of investors, a lot of traders look at that as being the minor trend. And then underneath, we've got 4495, which is the low that we made on December the 3rd. And 4456, about 30 points underneath that, is the 200-day moving average, which many people look at as being the major trend. So we're kind of stuck right in between those two levels. If we hold 44.56 as a resistance level, which we're kind of testing it, we're just under it. So we're kind of getting right back up from underneath. If it holds and the index starts to roll over from there, it's likely that we'll get a move back down to the January lows, which is about 42.80 to 42.40. So kind of what we do in here, I think, is get, end up being the springboard for the next move that I think could take us through the rest of the quarter and into the second quarter as well. Now, to a large degree, what you're talking about is is kind of either holding in these levels, um, you know, these support levels, or um, are you looking at how quickly it, some of this stuff happens, how quickly it might break it? Or is it really, is the sideways action kind of a good thing here? As long as it can maintain itself in between these levels, does that just give it a little bit more time to pause and, uh, I, I guess, right itself? Not in this case, I don't think. I think what's mm -hmm. going on here is is the market isn't quite sure what to do here. I think it's indecision. Yeah. Um, and uh, because we broke down hard um, at the end of January, and that low that we made at the end of January was a pretty obvious level. It was the high from May of 2021. 
the low from July the 19th, and then the low from October the 1st. So you had these three levels that were really close together and everybody saw them and the market bounced from there. Now it's trying to figure out if the bounce off of those lows is the start of a new trend higher that's gonna take us back to the highs that we made at the end of last year, or is this just a bounce in a emerging mm -hmm. downtrend? And that's the part that we don't know yet. So I looked to secondary indicators to give me that information because the market, you know, the big, uh, there's large moves here. We're going 50 up today and 50 down tomorrow. Just looking at the S&P makes it really hard to figure out what investors are thinking. So that's, I think, where secondary, I call them secondary indicators. I think this is really where they come into play. Stuff like my Asbury 6, um, our Asbury 6 here uh, is a very good indication of kind of what's going on underneath the hood of the market. Mm -hmm. Now, John, uh, so on that January 24th, obviously, and you mentioned this a little bit with where we had that 42.22 low, that was a very significant day, high volume. In your experience, a lot of times when you come in really hard and then kind of bounce, are the probabilities a little bit higher that it comes back down to truly test those lows to see if they hold, maybe even undercut a little bit to shake out more people? Or are there plenty of examples where it makes that low, it's almost a capitulation, and then it's able to just slowly rise higher and never come too far down and test those lows? I don't use that to try to guess whether it's a real low or if it's just a temporary low. Okay. What I'm looking at is when it's coming off of that low, mm -hmm. I want to see what's going on uh, I like to look at ETF asset flows. I think they're a really good indication of what the conviction is in the move off of that underlying support level. Volume is going to tell your urgency. So it was urgent for people to trade there. I think a lot of people saw that level and they were looking for a place to buy or maybe that's where some shorts were selling out. But when you look at the total net assets invested, like in the spiders or in the QQQ, it shows you those who have the conviction to hold the ETF overnight. So I, so I really focus on those. And right now, and right now they're ambiguous. They're leaning downward, um, but they haven't really capitulated yet. I like to look at these with a 21-day moving average, and that's our... It's our tactical time period here at Asbury. And right now, those asset flows are still underneath their 21-day moving averages, which tells me that we're still in a monthly trend of assets contracting. So mm -hmm. it still leans a little bit negative if you're watching you know, for the conviction of the money going to those ETFs. And, and uh, looking at uh, some of the data that you sent us, it looked like uh, really January 3rd was the top uh, there. And uh, again, that's kind of what we, we saw to a large degree. We had that first day that the year started out pretty good, um, but then really uh, those, those net asset flows really started coming off pretty quickly. Yeah, I think it's a really good... The markets move around a lot more now. I've been doing this for 40 years, and um, I've just noticed within the past five to 10 years, maybe even sooner than that, the character of the market has really changed. It's, it's much more choppy. Um, previous 
years, if you saw a support level, it would hold it. It wouldn't break it like you know, we could use the low that we made here back on January 24th. It blew right through those two levels. So if you were someone that was looking to buy off of those levels, you might say, well, it went through here like a hot knife through butter, so I'm not going to get involved. It comes right back the other way. I think a lot of that has to do with there's a lot more computer trading now. There's a lot more algorithmic trading. There's, uh, and I think a lot of these programs use these levels and chart patterns to kind of do a financial jujitsu on those mm -hmm. people that have been following those trend lines and patterns for years and years and years. They actually, it feels like they actually take the market through the level, either if it's down below or up top, and then they quickly take it back the other way. And you could see the spike in the volume and you can see all the activity there. Uh, so that's why I focus a lot more now on what I'd call secondary indicators, breath, acid flows, volatility, um, relative performance between stocks and bonds. Some of the stuff that's in the Asbury 6 that's shown there, because uh, if you're just looking at the S&P by itself, it could really be misleading and get you off sides a lot more than your on sides. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and John, I, I so I, I pulled up. We we, we show the Asbury six, but uh, I now I just pulled up the the sector ETF asset flows that you were talking about a little bit uh, before. Go into this a little bit more. Uh, what is this telling you right now? Where where the money is going and where it's coming out of? The CIF model, I actually built that six or seven years ago. I had an idea that what if we could track the asset flows in those 11 sector spiders, there was 10 at the time, actually, and they added another one recently right. in the past couple of years. But I was wondering what would happen if you looked at the total assets invested in all of the 11 sector spiders, and then you measured the asset flows in each of them in multiple time frames. So that's what we have here. We've got a one week time period, we have a one month time period, and we have a three month time period. So what I do is I find the biggest percentage assets in and biggest percentage of assets out in each of the three time frames, and then I look for trend. And we've back tested this um, um, going back over the last 18 months, which is we had the kind of start the back test a little bit sooner because of the addition of the communication services. We had to wait for that data to normalize. But it's been, it has beaten the S&P five of the last six quarters. Um, and the beta is actually slightly less than the S&P 500, which was wow. surprising to me because you're only trading two of these at the same time, sometimes three. So right now we're currently overweight energy since um, energy and financials, actually since the beginning of the year, and if you look back, those have actually been the two that have been the best performers during that time. And the reason that is, if you're looking at relative performance alone, which a lot of people do, and I do also, because you can't always have the self-contained kind of unit that we have here with the spiders, with the 11 sector spiders. But if you're looking at relative performance, by the time you can see the performance, the move might be a third over. And the quickness that the, that the sector rotation has been for the past couple of years, by the time you see it, it might be over next week. Right, so right. I found that I can get in front of these moves by watching the actual data flow, watching the asset flows in there. What's happening is I'm buying a lot more bottoms. So in other words, I may buy it on January the 10th, which is when we bought XLE. And at the time you buy it, 
it it doesn't if 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 you look at the chart, there's nothing there. But three weeks later or two weeks later, you're starting to see that performance because yeah. the money is moving the relative performance in that direction. So that's been a really good one for us. And it lets us, a lot of our clients are RIAs, so they can't go to cash. You know, they need to be 80% mm -hmm. in the market. So this allows them to be in the market 100% of the time, but only be in the sectors where the money is going. Mm -hmm. And you're using and the weekly are you using the weekly column as the earliest indication where you'll start buying at that point? Are you? Uh, no, we're looking for a trend in any two. So okay. I could see okay. a daily and weekly, or I could see a weekly and a three month, or I can see the, it has to be two of those three columns. I want to see okay. synergy across two of the three timeframes in order to tell me that there's enough there to actually put some money into that idea. And sometimes these ideas are gone in a week or two. In other words, mm -hmm. you might you know, get into something, the money goes there and nothing happens. So the money goes somewhere else and we go right along with it. So there are times that we'll be on a trade, let's call it, for two months. And there's times that we'll be in for two weeks because all we're doing is following money. I'm not trying to look for chart patterns or try to think of what the economy's doing or if oil prices are going higher. When the money is going there, I'm there with it. As soon as that money shifts and changes its mind, I'm following it wherever it goes. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it, it sounds like in a lot of ways, this is, uh, you don't have to get those macroeconomic things right. You don't have to get, um, it, will there be war or won't there be war? You're just basically saying, hey, let me just use the facts, you know, as they are and, you know, follow the data, really. I'm just trying to look for a trend to get on. And um, I want to be where the money is. Um, we could argue after the fact if it was because of um, um, tensions um, in Europe, tensions in Eastern Europe, or whether it was the Fed or whether it was this or that. But what really moves the money from A to B is, uh, really moves the market from A to B rather, is the money. So I'm interested in being able to capture trends, identify trends of money going into a certain place in the market and try to catch it as early as I can. And this helps me to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and, 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 oh, go ahead. Just, just very quickly, uh, I, I just, uh, John, I just brought up the, the S&P the, the weekly rate of change, uh, which I think w is really interesting too, to show kind of the velocity. Could you spend a little bit of time uh, talking about this? And Justin, I, I'm not sure how much time we have left in the segment, too. So. <laughs> ah, we can make this one longer. Okay. <laughs> sure. Uh, we have two different kind of indicators here. Um, you know, we classify something as tactical if it tells us when to get in and when to get out. So CIF would be tactical. It tells mm -hmm. us exactly when to get in and when to get out. This is more strategic. Strategic for us is three months or farther out than that. So I've got a 13-week rate of change in the S&P. Just to tell me um, quantitatively, are we in a correction or are we not in a correction? Uh, and you can see these last two corrections. Uh, it was October 2018. It looks like the February of 2019 mm -hmm. um, was, was one. And then uh, I can't see the other one. The chart is small. Uh, maybe you guys can help me out on those dates. The, the February to May 2020? 
Yes. The COVID crash. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. There you go. And there was the March 23rd low there, which was the COVID bottom. And yep. now we're in another one of those such periods. We don't know how long it's going to last, but it does tell us, I think there's a lot of consternation. Are we in a correction or are we not? Yeah. Are we coming back? Are we re-engaging the 2021 uptrend? We're still in a correction. So there's like a half a dozen indicators that I use to tell me without me guessing or using something that's not really tangible if we're in a correction or not. This shows me we still are. Mm-hmm. Right. And again, you uh, you go with that trend until proven otherwise in a lot of cases. Right. Now, there may be, um, you know, we talked about the Asbury 6 earlier, which are six different metrics that we kind of put together to tell us what the day-to-day internal health of the market is kind of like when you go to the doctor he always does those six things he sits you on the bench and he takes your pulse and he checks your bp and he may listen to your heart and lungs or do your reflexes that's what the asbury six does so the asbury six may flip back to positive because it is very tactical it'll slip back to positive and i won't see it on that 13 week rate of change chart maybe it'll two weeks after the fact so you have to understand that there's a little bit one is more sensitive than the other. Um, so sometimes you get caught in between going back to an uptrend with the Asbury 6, and then it takes a few weeks for that 13-week rate of change to catch up. But that's how I differentiate what kind of indicators. Um, you know, For me, an indicator is either tactical, it tells me when to get in or when to get out, or it's strategic and it tells me what the trend is. And then I um, as they kind of move back and forth with each other, uh, you know, you can sometimes see where you're in flux, you know, from, you know, maybe from going from correction back to trend. Mm-hmm. And to be clear, this Asbury 6, and, and for those of you that are watching the video, we have, um, you know, may, maybe we could just go through them e- each one by one, but they don't all have to agree. You know, sometimes you'll have some yes. flashing positive signs and some flashing negative signs, but maybe you could just go through each one and kind of state, you know, where where those Asbury 6 are at right now. Sure, that's the point um, of, of the Asbury 6, is uh, I think anybody that does this for a living has been asked about a million times, what's your favorite indicator? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't have one because everyone has an Achilles heel. Every indicator is gonna have certain times, certain environments where it's not gonna work. And if you get married to one of those, you're gonna get run over. So what I did was took 10 indicators that I've been using through my career that I use for tactical. And I started to back test them to see which ones would be different enough so they would pick each other up. So if you have a couple of indicators having a bad week, you know, this is where they're kind of environment where they don't really work very well, those other four should be able to pick it up. And we back tested and we found the six were very robust in keeping four of them at least keeping you on the right side of where the market's going on a very short-term tactical basis. So we have the rate of change in the S&P 500. This is the monthly rate of change, Mm -hmm. 21 days up top. And then underneath there, we've got the relative performance of stocks versus high yield bonds, basically high yield bond spreads. When high yield bond spreads are expanding, it tells you the bond market is getting a little bit apprehensive about the economy or the environment. And it's separate from the stock market, you know, at least to a degree, because it's 
relative performance. And then the third one is investor asset flows in the spider, which I had spoken about. It shows you conviction. Who's willing to hold spiders overnight? Not how much volume there is, or, you know, or how wild it was, but who wants to hold them and take the overnight risk? And then we have high, um, here's corporate bond spreads. Actually, the one up top was a relative performance of stocks and high yield bonds. Underneath there, um, underneath here, the fourth one down is corporate bond spreads. And then we have trading volume in the S&P 500. I like to look at on balance volume, but um, it's just my personal preference. And finally, we have a market breadth indicator that I also look at. And then this, each of these has a date in it. All of these numbers are dates. It tells you when that particular constituent of the Asbury 6 when either positive, green, or negative red. So right now there's four negative red. The metric has been negative since January the 14th. And um, actually our CPM indicator, the correction protection model, which is another model that turned um, risk off on the 18th and 17 was MLK day. So they were actually mm -hmm. back to back with each other in terms of going risk off and they're still risk off right now. Mm -hmm. Okay. Well, this is certainly a lot to kind of digest. Um, we're going to get a little bit more into uh, how you use these indicators, um, how you position yourself, and uh, we'll get into a lot more right after the break. Why trade off hope and optimism when you can trade using the world's most powerful indicator? Artificial intelligence has been used by traders to navigate the markets for the past three decades. Visit freestockcoaching.com to see the world-leading AI forecasting software for yourself. Trusted by more than 32,000 traders, AI uses millions of data points to track market trends, giving you the support you need right now. Go to freestockcoaching.com and we'll help you find great opportunities today. Our experts will show you what stocks are setting up for big changes right now. So head over to freestockcoaching.com for a free demo. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Investing with IBD podcast sponsored by Vantage Point. It's Justin Nielsen here along with Arusha Paris and our special guest, John Kosar from Asbury Research. So, John, uh, before the break, we were starting to get into your, your CPM, your correction protection model. So um, maybe we could just, for, for people that are looking at the video, we'll show what those indicators are that you're looking at. And maybe you can describe a little bit of... Uh, why you're using this as well, how you use it in conjunction with the Asbury 6. What is it that we're looking at here? Well, the Asbury 6, I look at as more of more of an indicator. Mm -hmm. uh, and this is actually uh, a very specific model that tells you either risk on or risk off. And the way we back tested it was you're either 100% in the S&P 500 or 100% in cash. The origin of it dated back to like 2013. And um, some of our RIA clientele uh, said, I like what you're doing. I like how you use data to make all of your decisions, but can't you just tell me whether I should be in the market or not? You know, mm -hmm. you know, the VIX and looking at all these different things are really confusing. Can you just tell me I'm either risk on or risk off? So started to come up with ideas on how to build a simple tool that wasn't going to be super active. Ideally, this was going to turn over once a quarter um, or somewhere in the neighborhood. So we started with that. And then I actually used some indicators that uh, are 
indicators that I have built over the years are nothing you'd find on a chart package. But I started testing different indicators and we came up with the Asbury or the CPM, the correction protection model. And the essence of that is it's very good at taking the risk out of the market. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is it moves you to cash quickly before there's any damage done to your account. So over the past 11 years back tested, the beta in the S&P 500 is assumed to be 1.0. The beta on CPM using SPY to trade it, which of course is the ETF for the S&P 500, it brings that beta down to 0.43. So from a beta standpoint, half is risky, standard deviation is less, the drawdown is one third, the maximum top to bottom drawdown during that 11 year period from 2011 to 2021, is about, um, I think it's a a half to a third of what the S&P 500 is. So the downside of that is over the past 11 years, it's underperformed the S&P by a little over 3% a year. But there's a lot of older investors that will say, if I can trade this thing where it's up 50 today and down 70 tomorrow, stay reasonably close to the S&P and be able to sleep at night and not have to go through these large drawdowns, Older people are worried about taking a big hit at the end of their investing career, and they're not going to be around long enough to be able to get that back. So this was a really good tool for that. Now, yeah, I, I, well, I, I think for really for a lot of age groups, when you're talking with clients, they're always worried about the risk. But especially once you get older, once you have the money, you don't want to lose it at right. that time. How do you go into taking a model like this and adjusting it for more maybe younger audiences who are, or younger clients who might be a little bit more risk tolerant? It's a great question Uh, because having CPM, the next question we were getting from clients is, don't you have a faster model? Don't you Mm -hmm. have something where I could take more risk? I have lots of money or I'm pretty young guy. I don't mind taking risks so I can make more. So we're always looking to try to build new models. And so we're trying to build a different model that would be the, you know, the race car version for people Mm -hmm. that are willing to take more risk, you know, for a bigger reward. And then it occurred to me, since CPM was so good at reducing the beta of trading the S&P 500, what if you used a leveraged ETF? Uh, How would that how would that affect the performance of the model? So we started using different types of ETFs and we found that by using certain ETFs, it could actually start outperforming. Again, this is hypothetical. This is back-tested trading. I can't see the future and nobody else can, but um, really kind of getting into the nitty gritty of this, we found that if you use a, leveraged ETF, it builds some of the beta back in, but now you start outperforming the S&P 500 by a decent amount every year. Um, so again, I'm really conscious of letting people know that past performance doesn't equate right. to future performance. Um, markets change, environments change, um, things are constantly changing. We were talking about that off camera. Um, about how environments change and you have to be aware of that. But um, 
it was right in front of us you know, for years and we didn't realize that all we had to do was take an already good model and speed it up a little bit by using a different vehicle to trade it. And it turned it from a defensive model to an offensive one. Mm-hmm. Now, maybe you could go into a little bit more detail um, on your on your backtesting methods. Again, some of the uh, you already mentioned, look, you know, <laughs> you gave your disclaimer past uh, past performance is not indicative of future results and and everything. But uh, maybe talk a little bit about your time frame that you use. And, um, you know, this was going back to 2013, 2011. Yeah. Why? Why going back that far? Not further. Um, what what's what's your thinking behind that? I know there's a. There's always a lot of conversation about this amongst people who do this for a living. How far do you go back? Um, and and Ray Dalio, I think, is a proponent five to seven years back. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, I always want to go back to some kind of a significant point in the market. So in the stock market, you're going to find a important bottom because you know the market inherently goes up. So we started from 2011. Um, and we went all the way through the present. Um, to me, to go back farther, and again, everyone has their own ideas on this, but for me, to go back any farther than that, I've seen models back tested 30, 40, 50 years back. And I suppose if you're going to do something that's very long term, I think you can do that. But because our model is tactical, it is moving in and out of the market four or five times a year, I wanted to keep it shorter than that. So I thought, Going back to 2011 was uh, it gave me more than that five to seven years. Um, and again, we've been in an environment where the Fed has been really goosing the market for the past 10 or 11 yeah. years. It's been putting a lot of money into the um, into the economy. Um, it, but the way the model works is it's moving you out of the market when the market goes down, the market hasn't gone down very much in the past 11 years. So when we do go into a bear market, I think the model is going to even work better because it's going to get an actual correction to protect against or mm-hmm. a bear market to stay away from. Yeah, it, it, it is funny that you mentioned that because we really haven't we haven't had any real corrections or bear markets for, as you said, for over 10 years. And even with our methodology, it, one of the big reasons for the outperformance once you look over a number of decades is the ability to go move to the sidelines when the markets are getting right. really bad. And we kind of lost that edge a little bit when the markets refused to correct because of all of these other kind of outside influences. Yeah. For example, um, in um, 2020, uh, we had that sharp breakdown, yeah. 35% from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, CPM missed two thirds of it. It was out on February 24th and back in on April the 9th. It didn't get all of it, but it got most of it. But really, that was the only sizable move down we've had since then. Right. So a model that's built to protect you against the correction, when you're in this kind of an environment, it's... Um, tough sledding for that um, particular style. And I think, you know, we're up what, we were up 120 points from the um, 120% off of the COVID lows, I think something in that neighborhood. At yeah. some point here, there's gonna be a, there's gonna be a downtrend. I don't know if it's gonna be a bear market, but you might have two or three quarters where underneath the 200 day moving average and things are moving lower. That's where, that's when I think a model of this kind is going to shine 
Because first, it allows you to avoid the move down. And secondly, it allows you to reinvest those dollars, hundreds of S&P points, ideally, underneath the market. And those are game changers. Those are game changers that are, especially lately, they're, you know, once every two or three years, you get that opportunity to kind of reset your portfolio in a big way. Yeah. Now, um, maybe you could talk about, you know, there are the severe corrections, you know, or the very quick ones, like what we saw in 2020. Um, to a certain degree, we kind of saw uh, some some very sharp movements in like 2015, in the summer of 2015. And then there were the global recession fears in 2011. Um, so, I mean, it sounds like your model really kind of protected against even, even the quick move and got you back in pretty good. But what about some of these periods of time where you, it, it's almost like a correction through time, where you just, don't really make any progress. Uh, you know, I mean, you, you look at 2020, and it was such a phenomenal, strong year, or even 2017, and it was just a, a very strong trend. But then you look at like 2014, 2015, and there's just like all of this sideways movement, um, you know, even in 2018, to a degree, you know, especially the last quarter, um, you know, where, where, it, uh, where it takes time, where it's not really going down too much, but it's also not making too much progress. How does the model kind of work in those time periods? Like most models, it's going to work better when there's a trending situation. Right. Um, <laughs> you know, that's the Achilles heel for everyone yeah. are these yeah. sideways moves. The model is set to the quarter. Um, it's set to the, to uh, a 63-day um, you know, rhythm or cadence. So um, it's not... Um, if, if there's a sideways move that extends beyond 63 days or one quarter, um, it's going to be chopped up. But because the model is set a little bit, um, there's parts in the model that are looking at the quarter and there's parts of the model that are looking at the month. I, I should probably rephrase that. Mm -hmm. But um, my just kind of anecdotally, um, as long as that sideways move doesn't extend too much farther than a quarter, uh, the model is able to keep up. Okay. Mm -hmm. I, I pulled up the, the chart of the, the Qs, the total net assets. Yeah. Uh, so, John, how do you use this in, in your strategy? This has been a... Um, I spent the first 17 years of my career on the floor of the Chicago Mercantile Exchange in Chicago. Um, futures. So we used to use open interest. Okay. Open interest would tell us who's holding those futures contracts overnight. Not mm -hmm. all the crazy trading that goes on during the day, yeah. um, which could amount to nothing and the market could be flat. But who's buying these contracts of S&P futures or Swiss franc futures, whatever they were, and holding them overnight. So then I get off the floor focusing on equities for the past 20 years or so, and th these total net assets invested in, in these ETFs have actually become kind of a surrogate for me for open interest. Okay. So what I'm looking at, so what you can see there, we have NDX at the top, that's the NASDAQ 100, that's the large cap index. And down underneath is the QQQs, which is the ETF that tracks NDX. And it's 21 day moving average over the daily total net assets. The total net assets are um, shares outstanding multiplied by NAV. So we calculate those every day after the close, after the data comes out. And you can see periods of expansion 
um, and the X goes up. Expansion meaning expansion on a 21 or a monthly monthly basis where it's expanding, where it's up above the red line mm-hmm. down underneath there. And then you can see uh, uh, it's a little far for me. January 5th, January 6th. Uh, January 3rd. January 3rd, it fell underneath the 21-day uh, moving average. That was a good that was yeah. a good top. Yeah. And especially for the Qs, the Qs tend to lead the market up and down. Qs have been soft for the past few months, and it's dragged the market down with it. So I'm really interested in what the Qs are doing because they're kind of the traditional market leader. They usually lead the S&P up and down. So, and what I've also found is you can see some of these green levels, these uh, these three different asset levels are identified with green text and green lines. They actually act as underlying support levels. We have this level right in the middle and maybe Arusha, you can help me with this number. I can't uh, see what, it. 181.7 billion. Yes. You can see that was a big level here at the end of last year. Mm-hmm. It was mm-hmm. it identified a couple of bottoms in NDX. And then we came right back down to it and we're still negotiating it. Yeah. And, and meanwhile, that 21 day moving average um, is getting closer and closer and closer. Yeah. So one of two things is either going to happen. It's either going to start to expand again and this trend will re-engage or we could take a, a second run at these highs or a third run, I guess, at these highs. Or it could fail and we could have assets leaving and that would take us down to that third level and probably push NDX back to the lows or maybe down underneath. So that's a way for me to get in front of the move on the upper panel of the chart, the actual index. It's a way to to let me kind of see under the covers what's going on. It's a really important level in asset flows and those asset flows will precede price. It's kind of, you know, first you push the car and then the car rolls down your driveway. This, (laughs) This is the push. So I'm watching this really closely and it's really timely right now. So that was one chart I wanted to include today. No, yeah. that's great, and I I, I did miss uh, I misspoke before. It actually is January fifth when you got the the signal when it broke below the the twenty one day. Uh, right, January third was the top. Yes. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, as soon as that changes, um, price will change with it. It may sometimes it'll be a couple of days later, but that squeeze, you know, your squeeze between the support level and the assets and between yeah. the average, that squeeze is going to be the springboard for the next directional move in NDX. And how long does it have to stay above the, are you using when it gets above the 21 day moving average? I'd like to see uh, a couple of days there. A couple of days, okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sometimes it'll poke through and it'll come back down. You could probably see Not some examples here. here where yep. it's done that. Exactly. So right. I wait a day or two, and then I'm looking at relative performance. I'm looking at MACDs and all the traditional things technicians look at to look for yeah. some support, but that, means more to me than those other indicators do because it shows who's willing to take the overnight risk to hold these things i like it um so you know there's gosh there's there's so many charts uh that you've got here so many indicators again a really fascinating way to just kind of break down these different elements of the market so uh for for people that kind of want to follow your your methodology your thinking here what's what's the best way for them to kind of get get some of these insights that you're talking about well, the first thing you should do is visit the website, it's esburyresearch.com, and um, there's a lot of information there. There's information on our models. There's information mm-hmm. on CPM and our CIF model and the Asbury 6, and there's a couple of other models we have. 
if you like our style, if you like the, you know, the data-driven approach that we have, if you go to the contact tab um, and just fill out your name and email address, and there's a little, there's a little text box at the bottom. Comment put, area. <laughs> yes, yes, thank you. And, uh, you know, just put IBD, um, uh, you know, or IBD with uh, um, podcast, I guess you'd call it, right? Yeah, IBD, IBD podcast. podcast. Mm -hmm. And we'll send you um, more information, um, a bunch of links to click. And for anybody who was here for the, um, you know, for the podcast today, we're going to give 10% off through the end of February only. Um, we have a three-month subscription rate, and we also have a 12. So uh, feel free to take a look around, and if it uh, starts to resonate with you a little bit, we'd love to talk to you. Yeah, awesome. So when we come back, we're going to get a little bit more into your SEEF model and how you can kind of use that to not just play the, the market indexes, but a little bit more down into what sectors are acting well. Great. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. Do you want to conquer market volatility? We can help you protect your hard-earned capital. Visit www.freestockcoaching.com and find out how VantagePoint's AI technology can forecast stock market trends up to 72 hours in advance with incredible accuracy. VantagePoint's patented technology analyzes huge quantities of global data in seconds, so you can finally stop guessing what's going to happen next. Check out www.freestockcoaching.com and experience VantagePoint for free. Learn how successful traders generate their wealth. Trading involves financial risk and is not suitable for all investors. Past results do not guarantee future performance. Okay, everybody, welcome back to the Investing with IBD podcast sponsored by Vantage Point. It's Justin Nielsen here along with Arusha Pires and our special guest, John Kosar. Now, John, uh, last time you were on the show, and again, you, you were one of my first guests, and I, I thought it was absolutely fascinating when you were talking about the SEEF model. Uh, and of course, that stands for Sector ETF Asset Flows. And, you know, you, you, you mentioned this a little bit in our first segment about how XLE and XLF were looking strong, but I, I felt like it was deja vu because I feel like last time you were on the show, you were also talking about XLE and XLF. So um, maybe talk a little bit about um, why these two sectors have been so strong, uh, wh what, what happened last time and what could be happening this time. Uh, take it away, John. The thing when you're following acid flows as we do with Seif, you're following him and we follow him week to week. So mm -hmm. there's a little separation. If you follow them every day, it's too close. So okay. it's updated every day on our website on the weekend. And when you're following them, you, you don't know if that's gonna be the trend that sticks. So maybe the money this week is going into XLU and XLP and you put those ideas on and the following week, the money went somewhere else. So these are relative trades, so they don't really burn you. Um, you know, they're just basically, are they outperforming or underperforming? But when the money moves, we move right along with it. So you might go through a period, you know, where you buy something, a couple of weeks go by, it's a relative performer, it didn't really make any money, it really didn't lose you any, but now it's going somewhere else. So you're rebalancing, you know, the upcoming, you know, the following Monday is when, mm -hmm. you know, is when we typically rebalance. We tell clients to rebalance. In other words, they see the model on Saturday or Sunday, and then they, you know, can rebalance Monday morning. But sometimes these trades sticks. You continue to go through the rotation and follow the money and wait until you get a sticky one. So you mentioned the last time. It's funny because uh, um, 
it's those same two, but the right. uh, back in uh, November, I think it was November 10th of 2020, the model switched to overweights um, on XLF financials and XLE, which is energy. And at the time, I put, you know, I followed the trades, you just follow the data and you wait for the story to catch up to the data, which often happens. And so I bought XLE in a year where energy was just beaten to death for most of the year. Nobody yeah. wanted to touch energy. Um, and, you know, financials, you know, the yield curve was flat, as I recall. And I think the yield of the 10 year was, it was under 1% and just mm-hmm. nobody was interested in those things. I put them on. And um, the XLF trade stayed in vogue. It, it stayed on the model, I should say. It stayed a signal on the model till February or March. Big outperformer and a really big outright gain. Energy stuck till April. And I don't remember the numbers exactly, but it was something like, I think XLE was up 25% and maybe outperformed the S&P by 35. Mm-hmm. And then they went off. You know, They went off the model. So we cashed in our XLE and XLF and we bought whatever the model was favorite. So the trick to the, the money isn't magic, but the money does tell you where the influence is. So as long as the money stays, um, according to our model, as trending in multiple timeframes, we just keep rotating um, as indicated by the model and it's tested very well. It's uh, it's tested over the last six quarters. It's only underperformed the S&P one of those six. And that happened to be the last quarter of last year, actually. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So like back in November, when those signals went off, I mean, you can see it with just this monster volume coming in both XLF and XLE. But you know, <laughs> at, at that time, and I remember seeing it, but I, I didn't really want to buy it at that point. Uh, and also, you know, that's when the vaccine came out and a number of my technology stocks were getting hit. So I wasn't really in the mood to, to do much at that time. But uh, I think that's yeah, huge you, rotation you know, on that vaccine day. Exactly. What, yeah, November but, 9th, I think, was the day. November, I think it was November 9th. Yeah. But, it's, but it took time for those kind of trends to go. But, John, I think you illustrated the perfect reason why you want to have a lot of your decision making data driven. Right. Where it takes out that emotion, takes out the opinions and you're really kind of just listening to the market. I think so. And, um, you know, the money is never wrong because Mm -hmm. the money is what makes the, you know, the price of an asset go up or down. If there's money going in uh, now, there's other things, too. Of course, let's say, you know, you see the money going into XLF and something happens with interest rates to exacerbate that move or maybe, you know, to muffle that move. There's other influence besides strictly, it's not a one-to-one relationship, but it does tell you that there's enough horsepower, there's enough conviction going into those spots. And as long as those trends keep going, um, you want to ride them because oftentimes I think the smart money sees things before most of us do. So rather than trying to figure out those answers, you know, for me, I just like to jump on the coattails of the money and stay there until it moves. 
So. Mm -hmm. Well, and just to illustrate that point, John, uh, Arusha, if you could, you know, for those of you that are watching a video, if you could just kind of show that area in the beginning of November on XLF there, just kind of point that out so people see exactly where that is. And if you're doing this at home, you know, you can, you can see this. But now go ahead and switch over to uh, TNX. And I think you did this last time, John. Uh, so I'm, I'm, I'm stealing basically from you <laughs> and, and your last uh, visit here. But if you look at zero TNX and what the 10-year Treasury yield did, during that time, you're like, oh, well, yeah, that's that's why the financials move yeah. so much. But it, it certainly certainly helped if you got in there early and, and unless you waited until it got above one percent uh, um, or, or even even worse, one point two, you know, what have you. It tends to get you in in the earlier part of the move. I mean, I do a lot of relative performance work. If for me, if you're not beating the S&P, why buy the asset? Um, yeah. <laughs> but by the time you see the trend develop, you have to give up a chunk of that move. You can see where that little you know, vertical line is there. If you would have waited until that trend developed, or that's been my experience, uh, is following relative performance is great, but you don't get in as early. And oftentimes mm -hmm. you got to give up a third to a half of the move before you see it, especially with the fast rotations that we've had the past few years. You're not... The XLE and the XLF that went up between late 2020 and early to mid 2021, those were outliers. That's not the way that sector rotation has been going lately. Mm -hmm. It's very um, you know, frenetic. Um, and every once in a while, you'll catch one of these trends that sticks, and then you're chopping all over the place again. So you need to be there early enough so you can catch those good moves when they're at their starting points. And as you mentioned, I mean, sometimes you'll get like the XLP, which is the consumer staples defensive, uh, XLU, which also tends to be very defensive. Um, and so, yeah, maybe if you're in and out of these, you know, very quickly, you know, a couple weeks, um, yeah, maybe you take a loss. But I mean, that doesn't matter if you're taking small losses on some of these, but you capture the big gains in, in one, some yes, of those others. Very true. Actually, XLP, when the market started to fall, um, four, six weeks ago, you know, when the market mm -hmm. really started to accelerate down into the, those lows that we made at the end of January, XLP showed up in the CIF model. Yeah. So bought XLP. Mm -hmm. um, I think I was in it for two weeks, maybe three. It made money the first week. The second week kind of stayed, gave a little bit back. And the third week it was off the model. So I liquidated it, you know, the following Monday. And I don't know, I think it was, it was less than a half a percent either way, both outright or relative, and then we push the money uh, somewhere else, you know, into the next trend. So it's not a magic lamp, you know, that, you know, you rub and a guy comes out and hands you a bucket of money, but it does help you to stay with the money, to stay with um, where you're going to get the push from those flows. Let's talk about uh, two underperforming sectors uh, this year, consumer discretionary and technology. How did the model do for those two sectors? That's the flip side of the model that some of our money manager clients like, because sometimes staying out of a bad trade is yeah. just mm -hmm. as good as finding a good trade. Uh, really helps your PL. So on January, the uh, uh, first week of January, XLK, you know, which is technology, that showed as to where the money was actually coming from to go into XLE and XLF. Mm -hmm. uh, so the money was coming from there. And then a week later, XLY showed up, which is consumer discretionary. 
So since the beginning of the year to kind of encompass what the model's been saying is money's been coming out of XLK and XLY and going into XLE and XLF. So for me, I just avoid those sectors. I might see, I might run a screen. I've got a couple of screens that I run that look at 6,000 plus stocks a day and look for setups. Mm-hmm. So I see a setup in XLK or XLY and I see money is coming out of there really hard. I'll avoid those and maybe look to try to find ideas in XLE or XLF or something that's in the middle, but stay away from those places that the money is draining from to go elsewhere. And that's helped to keep me out of some bad trades. And I think for guys who manage money, that flip side of the SEAF model that you don't really see on the signal per se, it does help people to steer away from those places that could be trouble later on. Um, you know, maybe you could talk a little bit because, uh, of course, these sector funds, uh, you know, not all the components are weighted equally. For example, in XLE, you've got ExxonMobil uh, with over a 20% weight and Chevron with over a 20% weight. So you've got two stocks that are uh, really accounting for, for over 40% of XLE. And, and you find that in some other sectors, too, mm-hmm. maybe not to the same degree. Is that something that uh, you feel requires any adjustment or, or not? No, I don't think so. Or we haven't tested the model that way. I wanted to keep it when I'm putting together an idea, I'm putting together a model. I really try to not put in a lot of caveats. Okay. Um, Cause the more, but what if, and the more of those things you put in, it's kind of like a car, you know, back, I'm an old guy. So I remember cars back in the sixties that didn't have power steering or didn't have power windows, those things never broke. The more you started layering on all of these different extras, and I think if you're building models, it's the same way. The more simple and pure that you can keep them, the less they break. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, well, uh, John, it was really great having you on again. Uh, again, it was a interesting time when you were on before, uh, and now we're kind of seeing some some similarities in what is in the SEAF model. So I really appreciate you sharing that with us. And again, uh, for people that would like to go to your website, can you just give that website one more time? Sure. It's asburyresearch.com, A-S-B-U-R-Y research.com. There's a lot of information there. There's information about the models, about the different types of research we do. Um, You know, some of the media stuff that I do there. Uh, but if you like the approach and you want a little more information, if you go to the contact tab, fill that out with your name, your email address, and put IBD down in the little box, the little text window, and send it back to us, we'll send you an email um, and we'll offer you 10% off of the price of a research subscription uh, through the end of February only. Great. Well, again, thank you so much, John, for coming back on the show. It was great having you. Great to be here, guys. It was fun. Thank you. Okay. And on the show next week, we're going to welcome back Scott St. Clair. He is the manager of MarketSmith, something that Arusha knows a little something about. Uh, So we'll basically see what Scott St. Clair has done with the play since Arusha has uh, left it in his able hand. Yeah, well, Justin, Justin, our our streak of having market technicians will end. We we had Mark (laughs) Newton, we had uh, had John Kozar, and now we're going to move to the MarketSmith technician. 
there we go. Well, we still we always have you, Arusha. I mean, and then, yeah, you, 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 right. you did go, get those letters behind your name, so uh, <laughs> we we, uh, we we have to give you kudos for that. But uh, definitely stay tuned. It's always a pleasure talking with Scott, and uh, we'll I don't know football's over, so we won't have that to talk about this. We time, always have but... Lulu. <laughs> exactly. We can always tease him about his Lululemon shorts. So hope you join us for that. Thanks a lot for watching. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review our podcast if you haven't already. We'd really appreciate it. You can also send us your questions and comments to investingpodcast at investors.com. We would love to hear from you and may use your comments on an upcoming episode. This podcast is for informational and educational purposes only, and nothing should be construed as a recommendation to buy, hold, or sell any securities. Make sure to consider consulting with your financial advisor before making any investment decisions.